Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in First uh, Kings chapter 7. Uh, we're looking uh, in the section of First Kings where Solomon is building the temple. We see that right at the very beginning of chapter 6 in the 488th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, then fourth year Solomon reigned over Israel in the month of Ziv. In the second month he began to build the house of the Lord. And uh, here uh, we've looked last time at uh, the first 12 verses in chapter 7. Uh, we're going to continue now in this next section. Uh, but remember we're kind of you know, sections in sections. We're looking at the, how Solomon built the temple of the Lord. You see that clearly in chapter six, and then again at the end of, um, you know, at the end of chapter uh, seven and in verse fifty-one. Uh, but within this, uh, we're looking at the works of what Solomon has done, and it's all introduced there in, in chapter three. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had finished the building of his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Here's, uh, you might say, three major accomplishments that Solomon uh, does in his reign. It only takes him about half of his reign. His reign is, is 40 years long, but about 20 years of that is dedicated to building the house of the Lord and then his house as well. Uh, and so he builds his own house. He builds a house for the Lord the, and then uh, finally the wall around Jerusalem. And last time we looked at the beginning of chapter 7, we saw that it was somewhat, was it a, was it a pro-Solomon passage or, or was it focusing on Solomon's sin? We uh, mentioned that Solomon still had his understanding that there was a difference between his house and uh, the, the house of the Lord. Uh, although his house and all these other buildings that he built were large and grand, he, he would not have called them holy. Uh, or even we see to the extent of detail we find even in this passage again tonight, the extent of detail that goes into about the temple of the Lord and what happens there. So tonight we turn back not to uh, Solomon's house, but the house of the Lord. Uh, we've seen the outside, we've seen the inside. Now we kind of go to decor, you might say. Um, and we come to a passage like this and it is overwhelming. Uh, we read it, maybe we can picture it in our minds, uh, but maybe we just start thinking, why is this in the Bible? Maybe this is only for certain people. You know, there's genealogies and there's two types of people in the world. There's people who love genealogies and the rest of us. And then same here. You know, there's, there's people who love geometry and then there's the rest of us. And we come to a passage like this and it's, overwhelming to to know why is this in the Bible? Why would we then apply 2 Timothy 3.16 where it says all scripture is breathed out by God? How is this useful for us? In what means is this helpful for us to teach and correct us and training us in all righteousness? Um, Well, when these things happen, uh, the principles that we learn in all that we apply other portions of Scripture still applies to passages like this. They're exactly the same. We don't need to get, go get on our different uh, form of hat to be able to understand how we read this passage. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. We go and see organic connections that are found 
within the Word to be able to see how the Holy Spirit has, has authored and inspired the authors of the Bible to, to be able to understand a passage like this. Now, again, we're seeing, you know, this section of, of Solomon's Acts as a large thing, what we're looking at here in this portion. Uh, but within that, the building of the temple. Um, but within this, we see even uh, a smaller section, what we will begin tonight. But in First uh, Kings chapter 7, verse 40 to 47, we see what a summary of what all is included in this section, second portion of First Kings. Hiram also made pots, shovels, basins. So Hiram finished all the work that he did for King Solomon on the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowls of the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars and the two lattice works to cover the bowls and the capitals were on top of the pillars. And the 400 pomegranates and the two lattice works, two rows of pomegranates on each lattice work to cover the two bowls of the capitals that were on the pillars. And the ten stands, and the ten basins on the stands, and the one sea, and the twelve oxen underneath the sea. Now the pots and the shovels and the basins, all these vessels in the house of the Lord, which Hiram made for King Solomon, were of burnished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them. In the clay ground uh, between Sakluth and Zadan. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed, because there were so many of them. The weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So we see this is the end. This is the summary of what we're all trying to cover. But you notice here in uh, seven verses, eight verses here, you know, the, the author could have just included this. Why then do we add all this extra uh, details that we see before this? And we meet Hiram there at the very beginning in chapter, in verse 13 and 14. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram a term Tyre, and he was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze, and he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. So this is not Hiram that we've met before. We will meet in a couple of chapters. The king, uh, this is Hiram, a different Hiram. Uh, but we see two things first to begin with, that he was the mother, the mother was an Israelite, a widow from Naphtali. His father was from Tyre, but specifically his father was a worker of bronze, and therefore he probably inherited this skill set as he worked with his father. Now, interestingly, Matthew Henry points out this, if he had the ingenuity of a Tyrene and the affection of an Israelite to the house of God, the head of a Tyrene and a heart of an Israelite. It was happy that the blood of the two nations mixed in him, for thereby he was qualified to do for the work to which he was designed. And here, this one particular person uh, did these tasks of, of working with this bronze, uh, most likely overseeing a, a skill set of laborers underneath him. But here he is, he makes all these furnishings that we read about here from bronze. Uh, just again, another comment. Inside the house of the Lord was specifically gold. Uh, everything was gold covered, whereas outside everything is covered in bronze and everything is worked with bronze. You see this even as a fundamental principle in, in the tent, the tabernacle, is that a lot of things are, have particular ta uh, um, uses, but the, the stands which the posts go in in the tabernacle were bronze. Anything that was touching dirt was generally bronze. 
Um, but more than that, it's not just the connection of the bronze outside as a tabernacle, but even in, in the tabernacle, a specific craftsman was there set apart to be able to construct in Exodus chapter 37. Uh, Bezael uh, made the ark of Acadia wood, two cubits and a half was its length, a cubit and a half was its breadth, and a cubit and a half was its height. And here, this, this person is set apart to be able to construct all these uh, things for the tabernacle, so too does Hiram and Tyre. So what does he make, and then what does he mean? What does it mean? What does he make, and then what does it mean? Tonight, we're really going to focus on the first portion of verses 15 to 22, where we're looking at the pillars, that uh, Hiram builds two pillars. So what can we learn about the pillars? Let me read verses 15 to 22, and then we'll try and unpack the meaning of this and how we can understand it and apply it to us today. He cast two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of twelve cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow, and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set on top on the tops of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. And there were lattices of checker work with wreaths of chain work for the capitals on top of the pillars, a lattice for the one capital and a lattice for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates in two rows around the one lattice work to cover the capital, and that was on top of the pillar, and he did the same on the other capital. Now the capitals that were on the tops of the pillars in the vestibule were of lily work for cubits. The capitals were on the two pillars and also above the rounded projection which was beside the lattice work. There were two hundred pomegranates in two rows all around and so with the other capital. He set the pillars of the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and calls its name Jachin, and set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. And the tops of the pillars was lily work. Thus the work of the pillars were, was finished. So here you even see within the structure of Solomon building the temple and his house and his accomplishments, the, the building of the temple uh, with the clear markers, and then again here of Hiram's work in, in the beginning of chapter verse 13, right to verse 44. This, and within this, we even have the structure and the outline. Even quite clearly, you can see there in verse 15, he cast two pillars of bronze. In verse 22, thus the work of the pillars was finished. Here's that section that we're uh, looking at, and that's where we see that divide up. But just even just to be able to visualize some of this, it's hard to be able to envisage exactly what it is. The Hebrew is, is somewhat uh, difficult to understand in some of uh, how, you under, in how you translate things like this, the words that are kind of foreign um, that we might not understand. But it, just even the size, you, you think about the size of that. 18 cubits, 12 cubits thickness, four fingers uh, deep, uh, hollow in the inside. Just the pillar itself was about 27 foot long, 18 foot wide, and about three to four inches thick of bronze. Uh, you know, you're just amazing to be able to think of that size of what is before the temple. And, he, and then you have the capitals on top of that, which is about six foot additional. 
So you have 33 foot tall pillars that stand at the, the doorway of the, um, the temple or the vestibule, as it says there in the passage. And, and what do we see on these pillars? What does the author spend a lot of time doing and explaining? What we see there is an image of, of a garden, which we've, we've mentioned previously. Garden uh, ideas and, and echoes of the garden throughout uh, the book, uh, throughout the temple. And here you see that gar- garden imagery with pomegranates. Uh, you see also lilies throughout this period of uh, the image of a lily, and, and lilies were, were life, signif- signifying life. But here you see that throughout the passage, but also even just speaking of the pillar. Now I want to point out another connection. We've spent a bit of time speaking about uh, the, the image of a garden. And the garden represents God with his people, and we're seeking to be able to try and uh, move back into the garden, the, the temple facing a certain direction, moving in that uh, way. But I want to point out another connection here. It's not merely just the, the garden and not merely just the tabernacle, which we've seen those, I think, a bit of time and spent a bit of time in our other studies. But here, there's another connection here that is, is envisaged in the pomegranates, and that's in the promised land. In Numbers chapter 13, we see that here the, the, the spies go out to be able to look out on the land, and we see they go in, uh, they spied out the land of the wilderness of Zin to Rehob, uh, near Lehob Hamath, and went up to the Negev and came to Hebron, uh, Amman, Shishai, and Talmai, the descendants of Enoch, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkul and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between uh, two of them. And they brought some pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eskul because the cluster of the people of Israel cut down from there. So here they go into the promised land and they go and take a, a, a cluster of grapes to be able to show how fertile the so- soil is in the promised land. Now, remember, they go into this promised land and, and the spies say no, um, the ten say no. But even in Deuteronomy, the connection there, of the pomegranates in this promised land, we think of it as a land flowing with milk and honey, but that's not the only connection that the biblical authors point out. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 to 10, for the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs flowing in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and uh, out of the hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. So here the, the promised land and what's connected again. You see the, the, the milk and honey, the never-ending bread, but also fig trees and pomegranates. Fig trees is often comes up in, in imagery and, and um, prophetic images. But here the pomegranates are specifically uh, uh, pointed out here in the promised land. And so we're, we see this connection now with the Temple of Solomon that here they are in the promised land, uh, fulfilling this blessing that God has been able to give them. The pomegranates is that image of blessing. 
Actually, one of the complaints of the people of Israel when they're wandering in the wilderness, after turning and refusing the promised land, they complain exactly what the promised land held. In Numbers chapter 20, this, they've already heard the report of the spies, and they, they said, no, we don't want to go in there. There's a land filled with giants. We can't go. But in chapter 20, again, listen to what they complained about. And there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished out when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we should die here? Both we and our cattle. And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly of the entrance of the tent and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron and your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock, from you shall give them to the congregation and their cattle." Moses took the staff from before them as he had commanded him. So here you see, here they are wandering in the wilderness. And what are they complaining about? They're complaining exactly what the promised land held for them. They said there's no water. Well, there was plenty of water in the promised land. There was no figs or pomegranates. There was no grain. Well, what did they say? The the promised land was never going to end out of grain. It was going to have all this bread. And here the pillars are a reminder of this, that they they have settled in this place. That God has placed them here in the land that is filled with blessing. That should remind them of their journey in the wilderness. Not merely because of what they saw as spies, not merely as they complained, but just imagine how they traveled in the wilderness. The Lord led them, but how did he lead them? He led them with pillars. A pillar by day of the cloud and a pillar at night by the fire, giving them light. So here it reminds them, the two pillars they are standing erect before the, the um, te- temple remind the people of not only the promised land, but also they're wandering in the wilderness. And they're not moving pillars. The Lord led them by moving them. But what these pillars are, they're permanent. You are not going to lift these pillars easily. There's a permanence about what God has done. Remember this, the passage that we constantly remind ourselves of in in Deuteronomy 12, verses 4 and 5, where it says that God will choose a place for him to be able to build a place. For him to be able to dwell with his people, no longer in a tent, moving with his people. There they will stay. We'll touch on that later. But but not only that, we see this imagery of the wilderness and the wanderings and the the promised land. But even in the pillar's names, Jachin and Boaz. And Jachin means firmly established. Again, God has planted them here in the promised land. It's used three times in David's promise when he received from the Lord in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
In verse 12, and you, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from the body and I will establish the same word there. The root word, Joachim, comes from. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish Joachim, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established, Joachim, forever. Here it is, that image of being planted, firm, established. The David is given this promise, and Solomon, his son, comes after him. And what does Solomon do? He, he remembers this promise, as we pointed out before, halfway through chapter 6, when he's reminded of this. And here David, David's son, is, is establishing his throne, a house for the Lord. It's all where that promise started. Remember, David said, I want to build you a house. And God said, no, 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 I'm going to build you a house. A house that won't be moved, a house that will be firmly established. And the second name of the pillar, Boaz. Now this means, he is my strength. The Lord is my strength. Now it's also a family name of David that we see back in in the story of Ruth. As Boaz took Ruth, he became his wife. She became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. And here, Boaz firmly, uh, the strength of the Lord. The Lord has established, but the Lord has also, God is his strength. So on two sides, you have two references of, of one of promise, one of power. Again, Psalm 1, uh, 21 begins and ends with the same word that we use there, that root word of Boaz. The Lord is your strength. The same word there of the Lord is your strength. Boaz, the king rejoices in your salvation and it greatly exalts. Verse 7, for the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand shall go find out all who hate you. Right at the very end in verse 12. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord. In your strength, Boaz will sing and praise of your power. Psalm 21 speaks of the king. And his strength is found in the Lord. And God promises that he's going to build a house that he's going to dwell in. Again, in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. You shall seek the place the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes, put his name and his habitation there, and there you shall go. So here are the temple, and beside these two pillars, showing a place of worship, a place of promise, a place of power. But the interesting thing is, these pillars are only mentioned several other times in the Bible. 
in the other passage in First Chronicles. And in Jeremiah 52. And a similar passage in Second Kings chapter 25. When you think of what they symbolize, the, the promise of the promised land, the, the promise of the king being firmly established, the promise of God's strength, being able to defeat all the enemies. Now think about this when we read Second Kings chapter 25, verse 13 to 17. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands of the bronze of the sea in the house of the Lord, the Elchians broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes of incense and the vessels of bronze used in the temple service. The fire pans, also the bowls, what was of gold. And the captain of the guard took away as gold and was of silver as silver. And as for the two pillars, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze and all the vessels was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits and on it was a capital of bronze, and the height of the capital was three cubits. Lattice work and the pomegranates of all the bronze and all the capital around the capital and the second pillar had the same with lattice work. So here, these, these pillars are taken down. They're, they're deconstructed and taken out. It's not merely that the people are weeping because these pillars are gone. It's what these pillars represented. The promised land, the promise of David's son firmly established on the throne that he would rule forever. The power of God in in his appointed king to be able to rule, that his enemies would, would be at flight. And all of this is removed, all of this is torn down. Joel has an interesting angle in chapter 1 where he says the vine dries up and the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up and the gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament. O priests, wail. O ministers of the altar, go in. Pass, in, pass the night in sackcloth. O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Joel, Joel sits there and says, cry out, languish, mourn, call to the Lord. Joel will later write in chapter 2. And the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. And here we see that this imagery of of what these two pillars signify, just torn down, leading, hoping, pointing us to something more. Now in Hebrews chapter 9, the author of Hebrews points out And when the first covenant and regulations of worship and had an earthly place of holiness for tent was prepared, the first section which was the lampstand and the table and a bread of presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. 
which the gold earned holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables, tablets of the covenant. Above it, the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. But the author of Hebrews points out that these are but just a shadow, that our hope is not in these objects, but what these objects are shadows of, Christ coming. In John chapter 2, the Jews come to him and say in verse 18, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. You will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Here, the, the, the promise of the promised land and the promise of the, the kingdom being firmly established, the promise that God is his strength of the king, is not found in these brazen pillars. For they're taken away, they're dis- disassembled. What seems immovable is moved. It stands there to be able to remind people, but when we look at them and merely just say, well, they're nice pillars. But there's far more than that. Now this temple that Jesus is talking about is not this temple that Solomon built because it's destroyed. But the promises remain the same. That all of these point forward to Christ. The Christ is the one who leads us into the promised land, that eternal rest found in heaven. The Christ is the son of David who sits on the throne forever. The pillar that cannot be moved. Unshakable, immovable. The promise that God is the king's strength. They all point forward to Christ. So when we see passages like this, we need to see how they're connected to Christ, how we point towards Christ. Again, the author of Hebrews doesn't make it easy for us when he says of these things we cannot speak in detail. He's speaking of the things inside the temple. Wouldn't it be great if he can just wrote a little bit for us to be able to understand there? Or if the disciples recorded there in, in Luke chapter 24 what that Bible study actually was about when Jesus pointed and opened up the Bible and taught from the Psalms and the prophets. We don't have that, but we do have the Bible to be able to help us, to be able to see those organic connections, how they lead us to either avoid a vacuum or lead us then to be able to see where we're looking for Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.